what would it look like if a bakery was self-sustaining? If they had a small plot of land and created desserts with only what could grow in that space, what could be reasonably harvested? What could we make in a day with the wheat threshed and milled, with the eggs gathered from hens, with the butter churned from cream milked from cows? Would it even be possible to have the variety of pastries we're used to, or would that only be possible with a network of local bakeries and their interconnected farms? And how would the desserts be sweetened? With sugarcane, beet sugar, honey, or other alternatives? At what point would the associated labor outweigh the point of the desserts in the first place to be a treat that enhances life with a bit of joy? Welcome to Regenerative Baking. I'm your host, Dressler Parsons. I'm a pastry cook, first and foremost, and I'm also a pastry historian and an artist. I first started working on this project during an artist residency on Governor's Island called Swale House. It was run by Mary Mattingly, an artist who makes sculptures and photographs about imagined futures. This podcast is intended to explore some imagined futures around what desserts could look like in our changing climate. Desserts are, by definition, luxury, but I don't think that means they're unnecessary. Pastries in every culture are, by their very nature, celebratory. More than any other food, they're meant to be baked and shared with people you love. They're meant to be eaten on special occasions, your sister's wedding, your friend's housewarming party, your own treat for getting through a hard day of work. They are a truly joyful food with rich and varied roots and cultures across the globe. They've been an important part of human society just about as long as we have been humans, and I'm interested in what that'll look like as we move forward. Since this is the very first episode of Regenerative Baking, I'll do a little rundown. The way this will work is that I'm exploring what a self-sustaining bakery might look like, that is, one that only bakes what it grows, and talking to experts in adjacent fields to help answer some of those questions. Our first guest is very close to my heart, and I'm really glad we get to kick the podcast off this way. We first met last summer when I did an artist's residency at his home, basically, except his home is a beautiful biodynamic farm slash restaurant in northern Italy. It's run via sustainable practices, they have cows on site, there's a dairy on site, they have a garden and a greenhouse, and so on and so forth. I thought it would be a great place to start with the basics of what is a place that already does some sustainable baking look like? What kinds of flour are they growing? Do they make their own butter? What gaps are they already filling? And how are they doing it? So without further ado, let's kick off the first episode of Regenerative Baking as we talk to Luca Griselli, head chef and owner of Cascina Lagoscuro. It's so nice to see you. <laughs> yeah, nice to see you too. Oh, um, okay. So can we start off where you just say your first and last name? Luca Grasselli. And how would you describe your role at uh, Cascina Lago Scuro? You're the head chef. The yeah, I sort of head chef. Uh, they, yeah, I am more of a manager of human beings, <laughs> something like that. I like that. Yeah. If it's if it doesn't sound too too crazy. No, no, that's perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of wanted to talk about your history with. Uh, with Cascina Lagoscuro, like, so when you were growing up, what was your earliest memory of going to Cascina Lagoscuro? So we came here when I was five, and uh, of course, a lot of nature uh, around, that was the best part. 
me, my brother, my parents, and living here every day, uh, waking up very early in the morning. Because, of course, I was going to school, but we were waking up uh, much earlier than normal uh, because my father were, uh, he would start milking the cows. And so we saw the sunrise and we were going to bed very late and staying out all day playing also with with cold temperatures. And it was very, very fun and very it was a very free, free time for me. That's beautiful. So you've always had cows then? Yeah, almost since the beginning. After a few years, we started with the cows and, and, the, and the restaurant. So when... Uh, did your dad start making cheese? Uh, let's say after five years. We came here in 1990. And after five years, after three years, he started to do the, the, the kitchen. And after five years, he started to do the, the dairy uh, with the cows. With just a few cows. Um, he was milking by hand the three cows. And uh, little by little, uh, he made more until 15 cows. Oh, cool. And so I saw the process of uh, cheese making and the building of the of the dairy, let's say. Wow. Like from when you were really young. <laughs> I was uh, less than 10 years old. So uh, it was at the, the very, very beginning. My father was doing cheese in the restaurant, the small kitchen of the restaurant. And he was reading this uh, manual about the cheese technology. And then um, he got very much into it and uh, built his own little dairy and closed the restaurant because that was too much for, for them alone. Wow. Do you know what uh, inspired him to start the restaurant? Uh, the restaurant, yeah. I think because um, they started like uh, for fun uh, to host people during weekend especially friends, parents. It was something very natural that came. Uh, so in the weekend, a few friends were coming, and then that friends told other friends to come. And then maybe there were a big table of 10, 15 people. And week after week, uh, people started to call and say, can we come uh, that night, that Saturday night, that we want to eat? Because uh, someone told me that uh, the food is good. And, uh, and so just... I mean, it was for fun. It was very natural how everything started. And I think that what keeps everything the same after many years, the naturality of hosting people in the farm. Because this is a huge place. And to have people here, it's something very nice to have every week. Not every day, but every week. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, yeah. What was it like for you when you took over the helm? Uh, at the beginning, it wasn't easy uh, because uh, we talked, me and my wife, Federica, we talked uh, with my parents about restarting again the restaurant. Of course, uh, they closed in 2005 and we wanted to open in 2012. Mm -hmm. And they weren't that happy of the idea of, um, like, let's say, um, reopening the restaurant because it was tough. They had uh strong moments because uh, with guests and when everything start to be a little bit bigger start to to be a little bit more difficult but the idea is uh, so they they suggest me not just to do the restaurant but to do the restaurant with other things like making bread and making other 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 production say and uh, so <clears throat> we had a talk and uh, every, everything just started 
like this to do a little bit of everything and that's what keeps us alive in a sort of way yeah now that makes sense like because you can sell your cheese and bread at farmers markets or yes exactly because we produce bread we produce cheese we produce uh, uh, jams uh, and tomato sauce and zucchini and croissant and pizza and focaccia and biscuits and granola and so <laughs> and of course we have guests coming and drinking and eating so it's a mix of everything and all the little parts help uh, the system to to keep us alive yeah it's like it all works together um yes. do you grow your own flower or where do you get your flower from uh, so, yeah, when we started, uh, we wanted to, to grow our own flower. And we started more than 10 years ago to grow durum wheat. It was a variety called Bologna. It's, um, it's a good variety of, of uh, soft wheat, sorry, soft wheat, not durum. Um, but then we wanted something more specific, something more interesting. Uh, now we are growing uh, three different uh, varieties. So we grow rye. Uh, we grow uh, Misculio Evolutivo, that is a mix of soft and durum wheat, more than hundreds family um, that we keep in the fields, and every year we take the seeds and we sow the seeds again. And, and then we have einkorn, that is, the, of course, the oldest variety of spelt that we use in the, in the, bread, uh, in the bread making. So the big deal about einkorn, if you're unfamiliar, is that it's apparently one of the oldest forms of wheat known to humans. According to the 2017 paper from University of Warwick, crops evolving 10 millennia before experts thought, einkorn could have first been harvested 30,000 years ago. In a paper from 1997, site of einkorn wheat domestication identified by DNA fingerprinting, did exactly what the title suggests and found einkorn was first domesticated in southeast Turkey. And of course, if you do uh, bread with this flour and you use 100% whole grain, you have a strong bread. Mm. Uh, so the idea is to use uh, also to buy some flowers from friends, uh, especially Piedmont. They work very well with flowers. And we do, we do many different types of bread, trying to use our flowers. Some we use 100%, some we use a little bit less, and some we, use, uh, we do a sort of gel of polenta that we use in the bread. Mm. Uh, so the idea is to, use, um, to give like a red line of our flower in all the production process and we have uh, now we have uh, two hectares and a half of uh, our grains two and a half hectares by the way is just about six acres or four and a half american football fields uh, we go to a mill when uh, in uh, july when we take our grains we go to a mill uh, we mill the the flour and then we get the flour back and we keep the flour here in the in the farm Oh, cool. Wait, so where is the mill? The mill is uh, one hour from here. So we, we have two mills of friends. One is in Mantova, uh, one hour from here, and the other one is near Vicenza. So we go there, we stay there all day, so we are sure that we get back our flower. Because sometimes it happens uh, in Italy or in big places that you just give the grains and you get flour back, but it's not exactly yours oh really the idea is to it can happen uh, if you have big firms or it's difficult to keep everything 
so the idea is to to go there, wait for the flower, and have flower back. And every year we try to use uh, our flower as best as as we as we can. We are in uh, Lombardy. In uh, the sun is good, but uh, it's difficult to have uh, a powerful flower. Also in organic farming, so we try to do our best with what mm. we, with what we have. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> Yeah, we try our best, and of course, the we have always to improve year after year. Uh, but um, that's the, the aim of living in a farm. Yeah. Do you make um, your own butter, or does that does most of the milk go towards cheese? So no, we make the butter. Let's say one time a month, because uh, we do a lot of fresh cheeses, and the most important for fresh cheeses is to to be fat mm. um, and so the idea is to keep the all the cream inside the milk uh, sometimes when we do seasonal cheese like sort of parmigiano style we skim the milk of the of the night so we we we, we take the, the milk we put it in a vat and uh, since the cream is uh, uh, less uh, heavy it goes on top and then with a with a spoon, with a big spoon, we take out the cream and that cream, then we we separate and we, we do the butter. But it it happens once a month. What's that butter making process like? So usually you take that cream, but you can start from the milk, you just heat it and you have a machine that with the sort of, it's called the centrifuga. Mm. And it turns and so the particles of, uh, of the fat are, uh, thinner, uh, less uh, heavy, and they goes on the sides of the tube, and then they goes down, and you have total cream, and then you acidify that cream, and when, after two days, you go with a, it's called zangola, it's a machine. Zangola is just the Italian word for butter churn. The one that Luca is describing here is clearly mechanical, and it's not an old-fashioned hand churn, but it's the same word. The shake all the all the cream and separate the liquid from the from the solid. Then you you have a sort of solid butter and you wash with the water, and then you have the you have the butter. That's awesome. <laughs> do you? Uh, yes. Yeah, nice. Do you use that to make your croissants or? No, we, we it would be nice, but the problem is with this process, you have a very high water content, oh. even if the water is. Uh, is not uh, there too much, but the level is very high. To do croissant, there is a um, little bit of a technical process. Uh, some sometimes we buy we buy butter from France because they have a very high quality butter. Uh, Isigny or Lescure is a DOP butter. In Italy, DOP stands for Denominazione di Origine Protetta, or Protected Designation of Origin in English. It's a form of regulation guaranteed and upheld by the European Union, and basically means that the product you're buying has been produced in a specific area and according to traditional ways of production. Very yellow, and we use that. That is a little bit more technical to be able to be layered. The butter we make, we use spread on bread or to make risotto or we love fat. Yeah. <laughs> Do you... Um, one thing I've been so curious about and thinking about like baking with what you grow is kind of the problem of sugar like 
Would you ever consider growing your own sugar, or is that just not even possible in Italy? Duga, I think it's like cane sugar. The the only the cane sugar, I think it's impossible. You we can make from beets, mm. but uh, I've never tried. Uh, yeah, it, it can be a good suggestion it's because, of course, we buy sugar and it's coming from South America. That's something uh, tricky. Uh, so maybe when you come, we can do a project of uh, making our own sugar. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, of course, uh, honey. Honey is another sweetener that is much more present here in the in the land. Uh, in terms of sugar, you can find a lot of Italian sugar. It's made out of uh, rapa, uh, and. Uh, that can be a little bit better, maybe in terms of uh, um, green, uh, I mean, in gas emission. Mm. Or we can try to do something without sugar. That's that's another difficult thing. Yeah, I won't go too deep into this yet, but there just might be an episode coming out about this exact thing in a few short weeks. Stay tuned. Do you have a favorite? crop that you grow like what is something on the farm that brings you a lot of joy in terms of flower or crop in just general? a crop in general i mean einkorn is a very nice uh, crop uh, we love it because uh, apart from the story that i mean we don't just believe that ancient grains are better uh, is is true but it's also not true it depends but the taste of this is great and when you have a good product that you make and that tastes good, the flavor, the the, the memories that uh, it gives to you when you when you eat it, when it's just cooked a bread or a biscuit or yes uh, or a cookie made out of that is something very nice. And I just love to 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 remember this taste because it's something real, it's something authentic when you when you eat it. And I think that's the, the purpose of cooking. It's just remembering something that that you had when you when you were a child, or that's something that reminds you something good. And that's, I mean, food is that. Yeah. Don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the first time you had something made with einkorn, or were you too little? Einkorn. Yeah, my parents just when they started, they 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 did the einkorn. Uh, in the 1998, something like that. It was a uh, apple pie. Oh. Yeah, they were using whole grain with apple pie. And that was, when I was young in the kitchen, I was eating like big uh, apple uh, apple pie. And yeah, then it was, it was a tough afternoon when I was eating that much, but it was nice. And then now you use the einkorn for the crostata at the restaurant, right? Yes, for all the crostata, we use 100% uh, our grains. Yes, is the it gives a because it's less powerful and it's very crumbly, it's very soft, and uh, it has a good bite. Luca's einkorn crust is the base for his fresh fruit crostata regularly served when Cascina Lago Scuro operates as a restaurant and also when they do events. It's a gorgeous, delicately flavored, crumbly crust that gets layered with pastry cream and fresh fruit. You can find the recipe in Laura Lazzaroni's The New Cucina Italiana, linked in the show notes. Are there any things like 
any crops that you want to grow on the farm that you haven't yet or like any dreams that you have for the farm? No, I love in general, I love vegetables and I love all the small salads. I think salads, small salads are the one of the best uh, ingredients to use in the kitchen because when you use it fresh, you don't have to work them too much, you don't have to cook them. You just have to pick them very well, wash, heat them uh, raw uh, with a nice dressing and that that is when you when you feel the freshness of the product, when you really see the a huge difference. Apart from meat, poultry or other things, I think fresh vegetables are one of the best ingredients in uh, in the kitchen. Just a quick aside here, Luca's enthusiasm for salad here immediately made me think of one of my favorite books, Salad for President by Julia Sherman. This was one of those gifts that I bought for a roommate way back when, and then I liked it so much that I ended up buying myself a copy. If you're unfamiliar, she's an artist who invites other artists to make a salad with her, their own recipe, and the result is so lovely. The act of cooking with another person is an intimate thing and can break down some walls. If you've ever cooked with someone in your own life, you know this to be true. And there's something about artfully arranging vegetables that makes the stark contrast of each person's little culinary fingerprints stand out even more. Her book is full of gorgeous, inventive recipes and really interesting interviews, like one she does with Lori Anderson, and also some great tips for growing your own lettuce. Okay, thanks for indulging me. I just really love this book. We love salad. Do you have vegetables that you really love, or just all vegetables? I mean, zucchini with the flour, you can use a lot. And uh, also, there's an Italian um, variety of zucchini that the uh, a little bit uh, less green, let's say, more white, a, a very soft green. And uh, we love them uh, with pasta fried uh, raw in the salads. You eat the flour, you feel the ricotta in the flour and you fry. You do many things. <laughs> I do love uh, ricotta in a zucchini flour. <laughs> yeah. We love the, this thing of studying food and serving food to people and try to let them understand through food what we want to tell them. That I think is um, one of the best things. In the kitchen, you can improve your technical skills. You can stay there to cut perfectly every, every carrot, every zucchini, every eggplant. But the idea is to serve them in a good way. Because if you cut them the best way and you don't serve them in the best way, less of the work is done. So you need to close the circle by serving the food and trying to express what you want to tell them without being too too much selfish but just to open to the to the guest that's the the aim flour bread uh, vegetables everything so the idea i think it is that more anything else yeah that's a beautiful idea <laughs> okay we try to do it every day i think you'd succeed <laughs> okay we try <laughs> <laughs> well Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Ciao, the rest of Ciao. So if we take this back to what this means for an imaginary self-sustaining bakery, it probably means the menu would need to be built around the kinds of flowers that grow in that area. The flower the bakery has access to would determine the kinds of pastries and bread you're able to offer. And of course, this brings up other questions about the wide world of gluten-free baking. What if you're in an area where the flour you're after doesn't grow so well, but you're able to supplement with oats or corn or rice? 
Ingredient limitations don't necessarily cut you off when it comes to recipe development. Sometimes you can still get there, you just need another way around. Thank you for beginning this journey with me. Before we go, I want to thank you for listening from the bottom of my heart. I'm really excited about this little project, and if you like what you heard and you want to support me in this endeavor, I would love for you to go rate this show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I don't know if the algorithms changed, but at least once upon a time, and maybe still, those Apple Podcast reviews make a huge difference in new podcasts finding new listeners. Also, if you have someone in your life you think would be interested in a podcast about building a sustainable bakery as the climate changes, please share this with them. You can follow me on Instagram at Regenerative Baking or Dressler Parsons, and show notes are up at dresslerparsons.com slash regenerativebaking. Also, the intro and outro music were made by me. This show is released every two weeks, so I'll see you two Tuesdays from now. Four days? Okay. I think that's everything. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, the future could be sweet.